0: Welcome to the Kaleo Life Podcast. You can find more resources for gospel living and information about us by going to our website, kaleo.community. Enjoy today's sermon. The passage that we will be in today uh, is uh, 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, and we'll be looking at uh, verses 14 through 17. Uh, So, As you are turning or scrolling there, if you would please stand up, if you're willing and able to for the reading of God's word. 2 Timothy 3, starting in verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how often from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation Through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It's the word of God. You may be seated. Uh, If you please join me in prayer. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can have confidence in what your word says is true, that your word is authoritative in our lives. Please help us to treasure your word, help us to see it as something that is precious to us, help us to see the significance of it in our life. And we pray that as we grow to know you through your word, that it would stir in our hearts and cause us to share that with others who don't know your word. We thank you for this time. We dedicate it to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Tonight, um, my, uh, kind of my, my main point is God has given and preserved his authoritative word in the Bible. Therefore, we are to submit to it, live by it, and teach others to do the same. I'll say that one more time in case you're taking notes. Uh, God has given and preserved his authoritative word in the Bible. Therefore, we are called to submit to it, live by it, and teach others to do the same. So I'm going to spend quite a bit of time on kind of the first part of uh, verse 16, uh, all scriptures out by God, and then we'll um, go from there. So in the Greek, uh, this word breathed out is, is uh, theanustas. Uh, which only occurs once in the Bible, and some people believe it's a kind of a made-up term by Paul. He like to do that quite a bit. Um, and so it literally means given by the inspiration of the Spirit of God. So God, the creator, the sustainer of the universe, the one who holds all things together by his powerful word, the one who breathed his very breath into the man, Adam, here we see that God has breathed all Scripture, all of Scripture. From Genesis to Revelation, from the first creation to the new creation, all Scripture is breathed out by God. God has given us his word by his breath in his Scriptures for his people. And there's something intimate about that. There's something deeply personal about that. It came from inside of God, from his very essence. And there's also something very authoritative about that as well. Um, <clears throat> I'd like you to turn to uh, Psalm 29 and look with me as we see what the psalmist has to say about the authoritative voice of God Psalm 29 says ascribe to the lord o heavenly beings ascribe to the lord glory and strength ascribe to the lord the glory due his name worship the lord in the splendor of his holiness The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The glory, the God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forests bare. In his temple, all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. So as we see, the voice of the Lord does quite a bit. I don't know what else I could read or say that would be able to convince somebody about the authority that the voice of the Lord has. I don't know about you, but I've never spoken in having trees break. I've never spoken in flashed forth flames of fire. I've never spoken in shaken a wilderness or caused anything to give birth. Um, I've never stripped a forest bear with my voice. Um, if I'm lucky, my dogs obey my voice. It's pretty, uh, it's pretty pathetic. Uh, but here we see scripture has authority because it is breathed out by God who has authority. So one question that someone might be asking themselves is, how do we know that we have all the scripture that God has intended us to have? Well, the short Sunday school answer is because he's God. Um, A slightly longer answer could be uh, because he has divinely and supernaturally caused his writings of scripture to be given and preserved by him so that we can know him. So God has sovereignly preserved his word over the course of centuries by faithful men who have painstakingly copied and transmitted his word. Now there's a whole lot of study and research that you could read and watch and learn About how we have the canon of scripture and how we can have confidence as to how we know that we have the words that God intended us to have. And so, in a much earlier version of uh, my sermon, I had a much longer uh, teaching on this, um, but I realized that uh, for the sake of time, I kind of truncated things down quite a bit. Uh, So, I would love to talk with you about that if that's something you're interested in or point you to some great resources. Um, but just very, very, very briefly, maybe just to to whet your appetite a little bit. Um, a lot of this I I learned kind of you know in in my study uh, of this of this sermon, and so, um, like someone who just like learned something new, they really want to share it, you know. So I'm not going to overwhelm you too much. Hopefully, um, so we have in our possession right now just over five thousand seven hundred. Handwritten manuscript copies of parts of the Greek New Testament books. Um, This is way more than any other work of antiquity. Any other older writings, like the Iliad, or like you know some other things, we have tons more. And that's just in Greek. If when when those when those Greek manuscripts were translated, then you have like fourteen thousand. Trans, uh, manuscripts, and so it's just an insane amount of of manuscripts, and within each manuscript, you have anywhere from two hundred to five hundred pages inside each one. So when you think about how many pages that is, that's you know anywhere from I did the math, so one point one to two point eight million pages. okay um, so it's a lot a lot of information we have. And so um, without getting again into too much of the details about uh, the degree of accuracy and how we can kind of calculate that and how we can uh, look at those things. Uh, because we have so many copies, we have so many things to check other copies against to know if what we have is accurate or not. You know, some people might say, well, wouldn't it be better if we just had one copy and then there'd be, you know, no mistakes and we would know we have the right one. But then you have to trust the person that had that copy and wrote that copy and did, did it correctly. You know, if we were to do a little... Um, Lesson here where everyone in the front row copied down a book of the Bible and then passed their copy back, and someone else had to copy your copy and then passed their copy back and they copied the copy that you copied. You could see how that could maybe get a little messy, especially if your handwriting is not the greatest. You know, as a teacher, I know all about bad handwriting and I can read some of it, but yeah, it can get pretty messy really quickly. And so, with that, you can see where people have maybe, um, you know, made some really dramatic errors like. There is this one scribe in like the 13th or 14th century that was writing, um, I think it was a genealogy. And so it was a two-column um, manuscript that he was copying, but for whatever reason, he was too tired of having a bad day. Instead of writing it in two columns, he copied it straight across. And so you could easily see how in a genealogy, you know, fathers and sons and it all mixed up and so you see that and you don't see it anywhere else in any of the other copies you know that that copy is you know no good and so again without you know all the details that's you know one of the benefits of having so many copies is that we can have confidence that we have the accurate canon that god wanted for us to have so um the bible uh in uh in isaiah Chapter 40, verse 8, uh, God through the prophet Isaiah says, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. So God has promised through his word that his word will stand forever. So, kind of to summarize kind of where we've gone. So God has authority. God's authority comes out Um, most often through his voice. So God speaks and things happen. Um, God breathes out his word. Um, I think we can kind of all agree that you have to exhale for words to come out. You can't inhale and speak at the same time. I tried it earlier, it doesn't work. Um, so just save, save some time for you. Um, we can have confidence that God has preserved his word and given it to us. Therefore, we can trust that God's word is authoritative. So before we move on, I want to spend a little bit of time on inerrancy and then on infallibility and kind of work through what some of those things mean. So inerrancy and infallibility, uh, they're distinct, but they're pretty close related. Uh, One's a little more specific and like the nitty-gritty details, whereas one's a little more general. Uh, so inerrancy just means without error. So again when we talk about uh, the Bible being inerrant, we don't mean that the authors and scribes didn't make mistakes. Actually when you look at um all the different um manuscripts and things, uh, originally there you know if you just look at them as a whole, there's over 400,000 they call them variants or differences between all the manuscripts. So in, in in a Greek New Testament, there's only about one hundred and thirty eight thousand words. So if there's four hundred thousand variants within one hundred and thirty eight thousand words, that's like one difference, or that's three differences for every one word. So it's pretty significant. But again, as you're going through and seeing like you know, maybe the spelling of a word was different, or um, the order of a sentence was different because in Greek, apparently you can write the same sentence sixteen different ways, and it still makes sense. And so obviously they as time changed, people's you know ways of writing sentences changed. So, anyways, um, so but without error basically just means that uh, the message was preserved. So, um, an author and a professor um, named Paul Feinberg uh, defines an errancy in this way: we we when all the facts are known. The scriptures in their original autographs and properly interpreted will be shown to be holy and true in everything they affirm, whether it has to do with doctrine or morality or the social, physical, or life sciences. So the, uh, the original autographs are the are, means, the original authors. So the original authors. Um, when they are properly interpreted, that means when they are rightly understood in what they were trying to say, uh, the scriptures will be shown to be true, um, according to everything that they affirm. So, uh, you know, some people might have the have the opinion that there are contradictions in the Bible, and there are many passages that could be that could seem like contradictions. Um, but that's more of an us problem than a Bible problem. Uh, so one of the really, you know, uh, main or most, most common uh, seeming contradictions are between James and Paul. Um, it seems like they could be contradicting themselves uh, when Paul writes in Romans 3.24, uh, one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So he kind of juxtaposes one is justified by faith and not by works, is what it seems like he could be saying. And then James writes in chapter 2, verse 24, faith without works is dead. So it seems like Paul is saying, no works, just faith, and you're justified. And James is saying, well, if you don't have works, your faith is dead. And so it could seem like there's a possible contradiction. But again, context matters. Uh, So Paul is saying that we are justified before God apart from any works that we could do. We cannot do enough works to be justified before God. And what James is saying is that the fruit of our faith, how we know that we have saving faith is because we will do good works. Because if we don't have saving faith, if we don't have works, then our faith is dead. So as long as the author's original meaning of the passage is properly understood and interpreted, there are no errors in the Bible. Infallibility is the next thing I'd like to talk about. The infallibility of the Bible refers to it being unable to be wrong about things pertaining to faith and practice. Basically, that we need to believe, that what we need to believe and how we are to live in light of that. If God breathed out the scriptures, and if God is who he said he is, he's omniscient, he's all-knowing, uh, and he's trustworthy, he cannot lie, then so too is his word that comes directly from him. Now again, just like with inerrancy, this only goes as far as what the Bible means to be giving instruction on. The Bible doesn't tell you everything about fishing even though it mentions fishing or talks about fishing. The Bible can't tell you everything about anatomy, even though it mentions bones and ligaments and things like that. That's not what the Bible is meant to do. So when, you know, when Jesus talks about you know the smallest seed being a mustard seed, okay, that's not an error on Jesus' part. The Bible is, sorry, the Bible can't tell you everything. Um, or it, the Bible is limited to what it limits itself to. Uh, But to that extent that it has limited itself, it is unfailing and unchanging. Again, when the Bible deals with things pertaining to faith and practice, it is 100% infallible. The penalty of sin is always going to be death and separation from God. Salvation only comes through Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is the only one who can justify us before a holy God and save us from his wrath. Those truths are true no matter what. Inspiration is another component of of the scriptures, of the authority of the scriptures. So one of the most obvious ways uh, that we have God's word is because he told people to write them down. This didn't happen all the time, and it's almost exclusively in the Old Testament. God told the prophet to write something down, and the prophet very faithfully wrote it down. Also in uh, the book of Revelation, uh, Jesus tells the author John to write down certain things. The majority of the Bible was Uh, through what is called divine superintendence. And basically, this means that uh, while the author was fully in control of his body, he wasn't in some kind of trance state, or God didn't take control of his hand and start making him write things down, Um, the author was inspired through the Holy Spirit to write down what came to him. The origin of the writing is God the vehicle he chose to use was a person. It came directly from God. But the author still has his own style, his own vocabulary. Paul has very, 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 very long sentences. You can clearly see those things. And so we can tell that even though it's inspired by God, he still allowed the individual to use the creativity of the vocabulary and what they were uh, writing. Peter writes in Peter chapter 1 verse 21 and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention to as a to a light, a light a lamp shining in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts knowing this first of all that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone someone own interpretation so it doesn't come from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit so here Peter's talking about how God carried them along the power of the Holy Spirit to give us the words that he wanted us to have we see that the prophecies in the Old Testament were from God, as they were carried along by His Holy Spirit. Uh, but what about uh, the New Testament? Right? Some people could argue that you know all Scripture is just speaking about the Old Testament because, especially in Timothy's time, uh, the New Testament was was written yet. So later on in Second Peter, uh, in chapter three, sixteen, in chapter three, verse sixteen, excuse me, uh, Peter closes his letter. Uh, by saying this, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of the Lord a salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of these matters there are some things in them that are hard to understand. It's comforting that even Peter can understand some of what Paul wrote. You know, sometimes I read a letter from Paul, and I'm like, I have no idea what I just read. It was encouraging that even Peter was having a hard time understanding some of the things that he was saying. Which the ignorant or unstable, which sometimes can... Um, yeah. Which the ignorant or unstable twists to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So here, Peter's equating... Paul's writings to the other scriptures as well. So here he's kind of uh, equating Paul's letters with the other scriptures. So the same word here, scriptures, is used uh, for the Old Testament writings as well. So we can clearly see that Peter counted Paul's writings as part of the scriptures. But I think the bottom line, the most important thing that we can take away from that is Uh, The Bible is what is called a self-attesting book. And what that means, or what I mean by that, is that the Bible cannot be proved to be God's Word by an appeal to a higher authority. The Bible is the highest authority, and so nothing else can be higher than that. Anything that tries to prove God's Word to be true, whether it's science or history or logical consistency, would have their authority over God's Word. And so we can say things support or things reinforce what we already know is true, but we cannot say that because of these things, it proves that the Bible is true, because that would put that authority above the Word of God. So to kind of summarize and kind of close this section up, we've talked about God has authority. God's authority comes out most often through his voice. God breathes out his word. God has given and preserved his word for us. Therefore, we can trust that we have God's authoritative word. And because God is all-knowing and he cannot lie, we can trust that his word is without error and is sufficient for all we need unto faith, practice, and salvation. So getting back to our main text uh, in 2 Timothy 3, uh, let's, let's look now at the rest of the verses uh, at the end, 16 and 17. So I'll, I'll read them again and then we'll kind of go through them a uh, little by little. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So here Paul is telling Timothy what the purpose of the God-breathed scriptures are. Now we're gonna kind of slightly take our shift away from authority of scripture to exposition of preaching. So the scriptures are profitable for teaching. This being one of Paul's pastoral letters or epistles, he's instructing Timothy on how the word of God is to be preached. It's primarily for teaching: teaching about God, teaching about sin, teaching about our need for Jesus and teaching how Christians are called to live and act. The Bible as authoritative means that it is the standard for what is true, for what is good, and for what is beautiful. When Jesus prays to God in John 17, in in verse 17, he says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. This word sanctify means to purify internally, by renewing of the soul. And that's how the work of sanctification is done through the Holy Spirit, by the truth in God's inspired word. So when Ben or myself or Chris or Sam or whoever uh, come up here and preach, the expectation is that we are going to be preaching from the truth of God's word. Expositional preaching is not just some fancy seminary-level word that we just kind of throw around. Um, it has meaning and intentionality behind it. There's an expectation that when we preach, we don't have our own agenda or our own personal acts to grind on a particular passage, but we let the Word of God speak for itself. Expositional preaching gets to the heart of what the passage is and seeks to make the main point of the passage the main point of the sermon. That's why we spend time going through it, reading the passage out loud at the beginning. We're continually pointing back to the passage throughout our sermon. We want to make sure that we're keeping in line with what the passage of Scripture that we're preaching on is saying. Expositional preaching also seeks to bring out the historical, the cultural, and the theological significance of the passage, right? Context is so important when you're preaching and when you're going through and studying the Word of God. What what is the time period that the author is writing? What are the cultural issues that are going on at the time? Who is the audience that the author is addressing? What theological truth is the author writing about? All these things need to be addressed when preaching or when studying the Word of God. And once all that groundwork is laid out, then the preacher seeks to bring out the significance of the passage into our context. So we first want to understand what the passage is saying to those people then in that time, and then we want to try to see how it can apply to our lives. And then from there, we seek to exhort, to encourage, and to equip the church to go out into the world and be faithful witnesses. Ben and I are blessed to be a part of a church where the Word of God is held in such high regard. Last night, as I was preparing for my message, I was looking out my window and I was seeing the snow just keep falling and falling and falling, and I was thinking to myself, am I going to be able to get out of my driveway tomorrow? And so, <clears throat> I'm sure most preachers who are you know preparing to preach the next day and there's this potential issue that could, you know, cause them not to be able to come. They might be kind of freaking out a little bit. Um, I maybe should have been a little bit more, but I wasn't, um, because, like I said, Ben and I are blessed to be in a place where the word of God is is held in high esteem. And so, when we were going through um, the uh, the pandemic a few years ago, you know, anytime Ben or I you know, got got the sniffles, got a runny nose, we'd call each other up and be like, oh, I think I'm sick, man. I think I got to stay home. And so if one of us was preaching and we didn't feel like we could come, instead of having to scramble and and figure out what we would do, we knew exactly what we would do because we had done it a few times uh, and we would just read through a book of the Bible. And because we are in a church where the word of God is esteemed, that is acceptable. I'm not sure that would be acceptable in every church. But we've, we know that, preaching, that, that the best sermons that we preach are when we read from the Bible. We don't have to add anything to it. We can read from the Bible. Obviously, we can you know, talk about the significance of it and how we can apply it. But that is when the best sermons are preached, when they are read from the Bible. So I was just encouraged and reminding myself of, of the blessing that it is uh, to be a part of of this church. Uh, So looking back at our passage, uh, the word of God is profitable uh, for teaching and also for reproof. Now this word reproof means that by which a thing is proved or tested. So what is is the basis for truth? Truth. What basis do we have for determining what is right or wrong, what is good or evil, what is moral or immoral? The word of God is that standard by which all other things are proved and tested against. It's not some relative standard, a subjective, immoral, uh, emotional whim It's not based on subjective feelings or cultural trends. God's word is the objective standard that he has set for his creation and how we are able to know what is good and right and true. The word of God is also profitable for correction. And this word correction means restoration to a right state. And although we might know what we ought to do, oftentimes we don't do it. Eliza would would often say, uh, my daughter, Eliza would often say, uh, I know that I'm supposed to obey, but I just don't do it. She's like, it's so simple. I know I'm supposed to obey you, but I just don't. Like, why? And so the word of God is there to remind us of what we're supposed to do of how we're supposed to live, of how we're supposed to act. And it also shows us how we can be restored to God when we mess up, when we fall short. We can ask for forgiveness, and we, and we know that we will be forgiven. And all of us need that restoration. Restoration. Some of us need to be reminded that we have already been justified by the blood of Jesus and that we don't need to obey God to earn anything. We don't need to earn his grace, we don't need to earn his mercy, but we obey him out of love for him and for what he's done for us. Others here tonight might need to come to him for the first time because sin has broken your relationship with God. And Jesus is the only one who can restore that relationship. It's through the life and death of resurrection and resurrection of Jesus that we can be restored to God and taken out of the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light. Next. The scriptures are profitable for training and righteousness. This has the idea of a holistic type of training that includes every area of someone's life. It's like someone who's training for the Olympics, and everything they do, every decision they make, is centered around the competition that they're training for. They don't do anything outside of that. It's instruction that aims to cultivate integrity and virtue and purity of life, righteousness, correctness of thinking, feeling, and acting. And so what is the result of all this? Over well, 17 says that the man of God may be complete, that he would be equipped for every good work. And this idea of the man of God being complete is the idea of, of perfection or not lacking anything. I don't know about you, but I'm a far cry from perfect. Just ask my wife. Um, but the idea is that we have all that we need from God. He has provided everything that we need to be complete and to be equipped for every good work. It's just that we live in a fallen and broken world, and so this side of heaven will never attain that perfection. But God has left nothing out. And so the result is that we would be equipped for every good work. So to kind of summarize again kind of where we've gone, God, or the God breathed, authoritative scriptures are given and preserved by God, and they are profitable to teach us, to give us a standard of truth, to restore us to a right state before God, and they are sufficient to equip us with all that we need for the good work that God has prepared for us to do. So as we close our time, I want to kind of jump back to the top of, uh, of our passage in verses 14 and 15. So verse 14, starting in verse 14, it says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. I'm going to, sorry, I'm going to read my, I think I had a on my notes. So I'm going to jump over here. Well, let's see. But, sorry, Verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul here is encouraging Timothy to continue in what he has learned and believed. It's easy for us to sometimes go off course from what we have been taught. But Paul here is reminding Timothy of the things that he has learned from his childhood and that they are true and absolute because of where they came from. Paul appeals not only to himself as Timothy's teacher, but he also talks about his mother and his grandmother. And ultimately, it points to God. In chapter one of Second Timothy, Paul says that he was reminded of Timothy's sincere faith that dwelt first in Timothy's grandmother Lois, and then in Timothy's mother Eunice, and now dwells in Timothy. So that faith has been passed down from generation to generation. So there's a, there's this multi generational aspect that is so vitally important to our faith. And by the grace of God, a lot of us have grown up in those, or are growing up now, in those households that possess a sincere faith. Parents have such a high calling to disciple their children. We cannot expect just because our kids live in the same house that we live in that they're one day just going to become Christians or that they already are Christians. I have to remind myself of this teaching in a Christian school that just because the parents of the students I'm teaching might profess to be Christians that doesn't mean that their children are as well. And so I have to be reminding my students or myself of that when I'm engaging with my students. We need to make sure that our children are acquainted with the scriptures which means that we need to be sure that we ourselves are acquainted the scriptures and we also need to be discipling others as well if you're not already I would encourage you to find someone in the church or even outside the church and start meeting together on a regular basis get in the word together pray together encourage one another we need to be in the word of God continually and fellowshipping with one another Just as David writes in Psalm 1, Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates on it day and night. In verse 15 of our passage, um, Paul says, These sacred writings, these God-breathed scriptures, are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus. The ultimate sign of wisdom is to know that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. That the wrath of God is against you and your only hope is Jesus. Proverbs 9.10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. God has authoritatively breathed out his word to us so that we may be equipped for every good work that he has called us to do. The work to go and make disciples, to baptize them and teach them to obey and observe all that he has commanded. We be faithful to that calling and equip ourselves by his word and by the power of his Holy Spirit to the glory of his name. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can have confidence that your word has come from you, that we can trust what it says is for our good, that it has absolute and authoritative truth for our lives, and that it holds the power to change hearts. And through your Holy Spirit, God, we pray that you would empower us, give us the fire to go out and to preach your word with boldness, knowing that it has the very words of life. In Jesus' name, amen.